Hey, my name is Colton. I'm one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope that you can lean in and enjoy this message. Ethos, can y'all hear me all right? Do I need to turn my mic on? I'm good. Ethos, I can't hear y'all though. I can't hear y'all. How y'all doing? Does anybody love Jesus in the building this morning? I believe the psalmist said, let everything that has what? Breath. So do me a favor, inhale. Exhale, that means you're breathing. So that as a result, you have a right to praise the Lord, amen? Amen. First, I want to just honor the spirit and the lordship of Jesus Christ here uh, in this house and then honor your amazing pastors, Pastor Jordan and Courtney Smucker. I don't, yeah. Um, Earlier this morning, Pastor Jordan shared how we connected. we connected pre-COVID, like two weeks or one week before COVID, and we were going to meet, and then, you know, COVID blew the whole thing up. And so we eventually connected, and this has been an amazing connection, and I am grateful unto God for the life of Pastor Jordan Smucker, and I believe that he is nothing without his beautiful wife, Courtney. So you guys are blessed tremendously here at Ethos. Give yourselves a hand. Thank God for the leadership that you have in this house. I am, um, I'm, I'm here, but I'm also a little bit distracted because I have three small children. Me and my wife have three small children. And so they were kind of sad at, at us walking out the door. So I just want to say, Naomi, Seth, and Salah, we're here. I know you see me. We didn't go out of town. We're here, baby, okay? <laughs> and our, our parents are watching them, so thank you for them. And I have an announcement. The baddest woman walking the face of the earth is in the building, my wife, Shanae. (laughs) God bless you, babe. I love you. But without any further ado, let's get into the word. Amen? Anybody hungry this morning? Let's eat. Let's eat. Let's eat. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. And I'll read that and then... You know, hopefully tie this into what we see happen in Acts 2 during our time together. Gracious God, first off, I just want to say thank you for being the God of all of our salvation and the God of all creation. Holy Spirit, I am nothing without you. So stand up in me. Empower me to do what it is that you have called me to do. Your word has already been breathed upon, so breathe on me. Let your word be hearable. Let your word be doable. Let your word be tangible. In the name of Christ Jesus, we all said amen. 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 Acts 1.8 from the NASB. If you have it, shout hallelujah. If you don't have it, shout hold up. (laughs) All right. Acts 1.8, and it says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Amen. I want to use as a quick thought concerning this text, the essential worker. The essential worker. Look at somebody and tell them you're necessary. Now, one of the things that this pandemic has taught me is that you'll realize what's necessary in your life and in this world. As a result of being isolated, we began to evaluate what we had going on in our lives and we made necessary adjustments. 
One of the phrases that was used and heard very often was the term essential worker. This referred to an individual who worked in a certain industry that where they took time off or they didn't even show up to their job, their society as we know it would crumble because they were literally essential to the stability of society. So we saw how in the words of the stylistics, people make the world go round. So the pandemic had many of us asking the question, what is necessary? And as a result, people began to make adjustments in their lives in order to cut back on some things that they thought were not necessary. And we saw this within the church. Churches closed their buildings and they went into a virtual space and it forced those in leadership to determine what was essential and necessary within their ministries. But on the flip side, people began to really consider if the church was essential at all. Pre-pandemic, the church has been struggling with the idea of relevancy. Will the church ever be the same or will the church be obsolete? With there being so many options when it comes to spirituality and morality, can the church maintain a level of relevancy that would keep her as the beacon of hope in this world? There's a book by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God, and it, it deals with individuals' indifferences and skepticism as it relates to God and religion and church in general. Keller says in this book that the non-going church population in the United States and in Europe is steadily increasing. The number of Americans answering no religious preference to poll questions has skyrocketed, having doubled or even tripled in the last decade. In a Huffington Post article from April 15th of 2016 entitled, American Religion Has Never Looked Quite Like It Does Today, the writer Antonia Bloomberg writes, and I quote, the future of religion in America probably isn't a church, end quote. With individuals who don't subscribe to any specific religious affiliation, the growing number of agnostics and atheists and those who define themselves broadly as just being spiritual, we might say that the church has some work to do. And to set the scene as it pertains to this text today, we see that Jesus has suffered. Jesus has died, but he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected on the third day with all power in his hands. And he has been visible within the public over the course of 40 days. Amen. And he is about to ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of the father. But before Jesus does that, he gathers the disciples and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem to receive (laughs) the gift of the Holy Spirit that was promised. Jesus is preparing them to bring in something that will literally turn the world upside down. If you back up to verse number three, Luke mentions that part of the purpose of Jesus appearing in public over 40 days was because he was speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is intentional about preaching on the kingdom of God in order to lay the foundation of a new reality that is about to come. The kingdom of God is a new way of living. Being a citizen of the kingdom of God, you now belong to a new system and a new uh, reign that is evident within the life of the believer, and they submit to that kingdom. While simultaneously being in a country, in a nation, in a city, in a region that is under a different system. Ronald J. Allen pushes this a little bit further by calling the kingdom of God the realm of God. Allen says that God is using the ministry of Jesus to signal that transition is underway from the present Roman world to the realm of God, a new cosmos of love, peace, justice, and abundance is underway. 
And in addition to inviting people to repent and to join the movement toward the realm, the ministry of Jesus embodied the qualities of the realm. Now this is critical because while Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for the mission to continue advancing the realm, the disciples are a little distracted. They're concerned with returning Israel to her former glory, in which we see in verse 6, the disciples, they, they ask Jesus, they say, Lord, um, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds back by saying, you don't need to be concerned with the winds and the hows, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, this might come across as Jesus being dismissive. This might be Jesus being a little bit soft and, and, and nonchalant regarding the plight of the disciples. Because to give you a little bit of context, they are now under Roman occupation. And Israel has been longing for liberation and even rulership. They see the messianic prophecy right before them being unveiled, and they are thirsty for going back to some sense of normalcy. They came from a lineage of great thinkers and warriors and poets and kings and queens, and now they are oppressed and they want some sense of liberation. They don't want to walk down the streets and see monuments and statues dedicated to an empire that oppresses them. They don't want to live in a police state where Roman soldiers are constantly patrolling their neighborhoods and following them home and harassing them in the open spaces. They just want to feel like their lives matter. And Jesus responds by saying, don't focus on the hows and don't focus on the when, but focus on the who. Focus on who the Holy Spirit is and who you are when you are infused by his power because there are things, there, things aren't going to be perfect. Things are going to be out of order. So in the meantime, you need to get some power to do some work. Things are not going to be making sense. So in the meantime, get some power to do some work. And that is where we are in this world today. People are crying out for justice and equality. Young people are losing their lives to senseless gun violence in our neighborhoods. There is disparity in our educational system, unequal pay on our jobs, food swamps and food deserts in our cities, disproportionate in our health care. And people are hurting and asking, when is it all going to end? And they're looking at the church and the church is looking at God and God is looking back at us like, I gave you some power. Now do some work. And this is what Jesus is telling the disciples. There will come a time when everything will line up perfectly. But for right now, get some power <laughs> and do some work. And here we see what it means to be an essential worker. And being an essential worker is tied to you having a role in the big C church. Your, your role in the church is to have power to bring this realm of God known as the kingdom of God. And we have to understand that the church and the kingdom are two different things. There is a difference between the church and the kingdom. The church is what is known as the ecclesia, which are those who are called out of one lifestyle, one experience, and they're now brought into another experience. They are also known as the body of Christ, which is comprised of every blood-washed blood believer around the world who confesses and believes that Jesus is Lord. And the kingdom is the reign and rule of God, as a result of submitting to the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. So you can believe without being submitted. In other words, you can confess Christ as Lord, but not live like Christ as Lord. You can be saved and still be mean and nasty to people because your confession hasn't converted into submission. 
And this is where the power of the, of the Holy Spirit comes into play. The Holy Spirit is essential to the life of the believer so that they can have power to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because that same power now lives in us so that we can help expand and make real the kingdom of God within the lives of people. And we see this happen by what Jesus tells the disciples in our text. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. And I want to lift up a few principles and I'll get out your way. And the first one is that you have the power to break through. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This word power that Jesus speaks of is the word dunamis. It is defined as the force or the miraculous power that is in someone or something. It is also defined as the potential power that someone or, so, someone or something holds. So it deals with the power that is locked up within someone or something and its potential and what happens when the, when the power becomes actualized. Dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. What makes dynamite so effective is that it's a stick comprised of absorbent material. And it is soaked in nitroglycerin and it is surrounded and packed in the material that holds it together that has a blasting cap and a fuse at the end. And so once the fuse is lit and it reaches the stick, the explosive material that is in the stick of dynamite detonates and explodes due to the spontaneity or the sudden impact that happens when the fire touches the explosive material. In other words, when the potentiality of what is packaged is actualized and when it is merged with the source that can release what is in it, the power is now released and explosion happens. And what we see happen as a result of the explosion is a breakthrough takes place so that what was once standing there has now fallen and has now broken apart. A breakthrough has taken place because the power that had potential is now actualized. And this is what we see happen in Acts chapter 2. If you look at verses 6 through 11, you don't, have to do, you don't have to go there. But on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples are filled with the Holy Ghost in the upper room and the crowd notices a sound and a disturbance happening in the house, the disciples now come outside of that house where Jews from all over the world are gathered. We see Jews from, uh, who are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Jews from Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia. Then we go to Africa. We have Jews from Egypt and districts uh, from Libya around Cyrene. And then we have Jews from Rome and Jews who are Cretans and Arabs and all of these Jews <laughs> are, are from different nations from around the world and they hear these Jews from Galilee speaking their own native language wow. that's breakthrough power yeah. those who are in the upper room now have the power to speak in other tongues and I'm not going to deal with uh, the power and the gift of tongues but if you look at the context of this text the other tongues that is found in Acts 2 is what's known as xenoglossia. Xenoglossia is defined as the use of actual foreign language by a person with no conscious knowledge of that language. So we, what we see happen is that the Holy Spirit has now empowered them to speak a language that they had no prior understanding or consciousness of knowing. The Holy Spirit gave them the power to do something that they were never able to do before. Y'all missed that. Y'all missed that. The Holy Spirit empowered them 
to do something that they never had the power or the ability or the knowledge to do before. And this is a lesson for us that once we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we have the power to break through. The disciples that we see in Acts chapter 2 had an obvious language barrier. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, God enabled them with the power to break through in order to get the message out. And when we have to understand that we in the church have the power to break through. We have the power to speak the language of those around us and to relate to them. And what happens within the four walls of that house gave the disciples the power to make a difference outside of the four walls of that house. And I just want y'all to realize that what you're being equipped with within the four walls of this house is enabling you and empowering you to make a difference and an impact outside of the four walls of this house. And I know as the world is coming back to normal, as we're opening back up during this pandemic, many of us are becoming comfortable with returning to whatever sense of normalcy we had pre-pandemic, but it would be a disservice to the church if we were forced to be outside for a whole year, outside of the four walls of the church so that God could develop us and mold us and empower us to speak the language of those outside of the four walls of our church. Then we go back to the four walls of our church and we go back to something that's normal and we go back to something that's comfortable and we forget that we have the power to relate and break through. We go back to our Sunday morning worship and we come in here comfortable looking at people who are familiar and we return to our church cliques and we neglect those who have been crying out to be loved and we forget about those who are hurting on our jobs when we have been infused and empowered to be relatable. We can't get back to a status quo religion where we forget to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. But we have to realize that the Holy Spirit has given us something that enables us to break through. You have the power to break through. But not only that, you have the power to be an effective witness. Again, it's in the text. Jesus says, you shall, you will be my witnesses. Now, this word witness that we see in Acts 1-8 comes from the Greek word martus, which means a witness, literally, judicially, or figuratively, By analogy, a martyr, and a martyr is a record or a witness, and listen to this, one who witnessed unto death. One who witnessed unto death. And what I believe is interesting about this definition of the word is that we see that the word martyr comes from the word martus. And what we generally believe and understand about a martyr is that it's associated with somebody who was persecuted and then executed or killed as a result of something that they believe. But if you look at the definition of martyr or what a martyr is, that's not necessarily the exact definition of it. But instead what it's saying is that you are a witness. You are convicted of something and you believe something and what it is that you believe, you stay true to that up until the day that you die. So it's not that you were killed or died as a result of what you believe, but what you believe stays with you and you believe that and you are true to that up until you die. And looking at this from the standpoint of a legal trial where an individual has to take the witness stand, 
because they have firsthand knowledge or they have experienced a certain dynamic of the case that will help them uh, bring a greater understanding to the, to the trial. This is important because before the witness takes the stand, there's an understanding from the team that is presenting them that the witness has a story that is crucial to the entire trial. And one of my favorite movies is The Godfather 2. Um, Godfather 2 and Godfather 1, not Godfather 3. Um, there's a particular scene within The Godfather that is important to the entire plot of the movie. Uh, part of the plot is the Corleone family is now being tried before a Senate Judiciary Committee in D.C., right? And they're trying to figure out what the Corleone family is all about. They're trying to pinpoint Michael Corleone, who is the head of the family. And they bring in a witness by the name of Frank Pantangeli. And Frank Pantangeli is a witness because he thought he was double-crossed and betrayed by the Corleone family. And Michael Corleone gets word of this, and he's trying to figure out um, how he can get to him. You understand what I'm saying? But he can't get to him because he's under witness protection. And so when Frank Pantangeli goes into the room, he, he scans the room, he's with his lawyers, he's with his team, and he turns around and he sees entering into the door Michael Corleone. But Michael Corleone isn't by himself. Michael Corleone walks into the room with Frank Pantangeli's brother from Sicily. And Frank Pantangeli locks eyes with his brother and his brother stares at him with his death stare. And that froze Frank Pantangeli. And now he's shook, he's nervous. And so when it's time for Frank Pantangeli to give his, give his account, he's like, uh, you know, you said Michael Corleone did this and Michael Corleone did that. And I said, sure, why not? I just told you what you wanted to hear. And they're like, Frank, we have you on sworn affidavit. We have a record saying that this is what Michael Corleone did. Michael Corleone is the head of the, of the Corleone family. He's like, well, I don't really know anything about that. I just told you what you wanted to hear. At that moment, Frank Pantangeli becomes not a credible witness. Because what he once said, he now denied. And so what he was a witness of, he denied that. And then later on, he dies, and he's not a martyr. Jesus is telling him, telling us, that you have to be a martyr. That if you believe that I am the son of the living God, that has to stay true to you up until you die. So if you are executed, if you get hit by a bus, if you just die of natural causes, if we're going to stand up at your funeral and say, this is what I know about this person. This person lived a life that was evident of the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. I don't know anything else about them, but what I do know about them is that they love the Lord. And what, we, what, what the Lord is calling us to do is to be an effective witness to the point where, where we enter into spaces and we go and we encounter people who don't look like us, who, do, who don't know us, that they know that there is something evident within your life. There's something different about you. Being a martyr makes the difference. Being an effective witness makes the difference, but also being an effective witness means that you have power to be different. And we see this within the life of Peter. <laughs> Peter, if you see what happens at, in Acts 2.13, the people are seeing how the disciples are carrying on, coming out of the upper room, and um, they think they're drunk. They think they're drunk. And um, uh, we're family, right? We're family. On, right. We're family. Um, I've never been drunk before, but I've been tipsy. 
Yeah, I, I, I've been tipsy. I've never been drunk. Um, don't laugh at me, but I've been tipsy. And part of my reasoning for being tipsy is I don't want to be drunk so where I seem like I'm not in control. So I can feel a little something while I'm out and I can snap back into reality. I can hear the music, I can groove to the beat, but I cannot be sloppy and, and slurring my speech and not knowing what's going on. If I see a group of people running, I know I need to take off too. If I need to defend myself, I know I need to defend myself. And if I'm drunk, I can't do that because I'm, I'm all out of balance. So that was my reasoning for being tipsy and not drunk. And what we see happen within the book of Acts is that when they are filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, <laughs> the people notice that there's a difference. When they're filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, they say, you know what, these people are drunk. And this is what I know, like, uh, this is what I love about Peter. Peter's like, nah, it's too early to be drunk. <laughs> but, this <is> what, <laughs> but this is what the prophet Joel said. Peter is saying, you know what? We got hold of something. And now you see that there is a significant difference in how we operate. <laughs> when you're drunk, you operate a little bit differently. Because when you're drunk, you're not allowed to, op or you shouldn't operate a lot of things, you just sit down and get sober. <laughs> but when you're tipsy, you can blend in. When you're tipsy, you can make it seem like everything's okay. When you're tipsy, you look normal. You're, there's no difference between you and everybody else. And this is part of the problem with some of us in the church is that we're tipsy wow. and we're not drunk. Some of us are so, so concerned with being tipsy and blending in with the world and being okay and cool on our jobs that, we're, that we lost sight, that we're called out to be different. Peter said you are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. There is a difference between you and the world. You're tipsy to the point where you, you, you prioritize your political beliefs higher than biblical principle. And the Lord is telling you, you need to be different. And how you're different is being enabled and being infused by the power of my spirit. And we see that this happens within the life of Peter. Because it was this same Peter who pulled out a switchblade and cut off a Roman official's ear. It was this same Peter who, who cussed out a young girl and then denied Jesus. It was this same Peter who told Jesus he was right or die and he would be with them until death into prison. And somehow... The same Peter who was doing all that stuff in the past, that on the day of Pentecost, he's drunk and filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stands up and proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where 3,000 souls are added to the church. I got a question for you. What's your spiritual content level? What have you been sipping on this week? What have you been tasting this week? Have you been tasting your anxiety? Have you been tasting your worries? Have you been tasting what's going on, going on in the world around you? Or, or have you been tasting on the goodness of the Lord? When you reflect on the power of who Jesus is, somehow a transformation takes place. All of us in here are at somethings. But once we got within 
we took hold of the transformative power of Jesus Christ, we became different. We became different. Your witness will make you different. And I want to land right here. Not only do you have the power to break through, not only do you have the power to be an effective witness, but you also have the power to be universal. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. When you're a witness for Jesus Christ, you just don't stay isolated to where you are. But you are commissioned to go outside of where you are to reach other people. Notice this, Jesus names specific locations. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he says, just all over the world. <laughs> but I want you to think about this. One particular location that he named was Samaria. Now, without getting into too much history, too much uh, context within this. But Samaria was a place where the Jews didn't go there. They didn't mess with Samaria. In fact, if you look at the gospel account of John, in John chapter 4, verse 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well in Samaria, John says, and I love this, that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. That's significant because the Jews at the time when traveling, they went around Samaria. They hated Samaritans so much that wherever they were traveling, if the GPS called for them to go through Samaria, they rerouted and added more time to their travel because they didn't want to be bothered or mess with the Samaritans. So they went around Samaria where it would be easier for them and shorter for them to go through Samaria. But Jesus, being the loving Christ that he is, said, I have a need to go through Samaria. And my question to you is, who or what is your Samaria. I'll close with this question. Who or what is your Samaria? What is God calling you to do that you told yourself you would never do it? What is God calling you to do that you made every reasonable, imaginable excuse not to do it. I don't know them. I've never been over there. We don't speak the same language. We don't have the same background. I come from a two-parent household. They come from a one-parent household. We don't have the same education. I have three degrees. They have a GED. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I don't, I don't have the experience. I just feel very inadequate. And Jesus is like, don't worry about what it is that you think you have. 
Don't worry about what it is that you think you are able to do in your own power. Don't get caught up in performance anxiety. But there's a call on your life for you to go through and to go to what it is that I'm calling you to do. This is what Jesus is calling the Big C Church to do. To be empowered by his spirit. Mm. To be empowered by his spirit in order to do the work. The reason why we're called the body of Christ is because we are the body of Christ. Christ was here physically over 2,000 years ago. But now Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. But Christ has called individuals who believe in him to be who he is on this earth. And the only way to do that is to have his power. Is to have his spirit. The same spirit that was hovering over the faces of the deep in creation that brought things into existence. The same spirit that was breathed into Adam and Adam became a living soul. The same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives with inside of you. This same power, as Paul said, now unto him who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to what? The power that what? Works within you. That's what you have. You have the dunamis. You have the pneuma, the breath of God to make a difference in this world. And we're living in a time where the world is absolutely crazy. And the world is looking for answers everywhere. And the answer for this world is in the son of the living God, Jesus Christ himself. And people are looking at the church and the church is looking at God and God is looking at us like, I called you, get some power, do some work. Get some power, do some work.